You take your Bibles now and turn to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at a parable in uh, Matthew 18. This morning, I feel like I'm on two microphones at once. Am I? Something's weird. I know. Something's weird because I'm here. That's why something's weird. <laughs> this morning, I feel like we have a unique opportunity. In my judgment, our text for today is particularly important given our cultural moment. If you read the products of our culture, shows that stream on TV or cable news, blogs or journals or tweets or posts, you know that we are in a woke moment. Perhaps you've heard that term, woke. Can't imagine any of us haven't. It's, it, used to, it used to describe someone who would like wake up from sleep, right? I woke up from my nap, in theory. But now this term has been moved into a lexicon that includes concepts like critical race theory, intersectionality, diversity, inclusivity, and equity standards. It was at the center of a recent governor's race in Virginia. We read of school board meetings nationwide where parents address the intrusion of woke ideology at every level. Parental warning. I'm about to describe a couple of those things. In Oregon, fifth graders will be studying lesbian romance. Vermont started handing out condoms to 11-year-olds in November. A Florida school board member took elementary-aged children on a field trip to a gay bar in a restaurant. This same ideology was the banner raised in 2020 over police shootings and riots and murals painted on city streets. This family of social thought is about grievances and imbalances, racial grievances in our nation's history, gender grievances in different cultural spaces, sexual grievances among those now referred to as sexual minorities. To be woke means to have come to your senses that there is injustice all around us. In other words, woke is about justice, or at least a version of justice. It's about holding grievances over the heads of the so-called perpetrators so that there will finally be justice. With its lopsided emphasis on justice, it is inherently cynical. In other words, it's always looking for what's wrong, what's unbalanced, what appears unfair. While there are some in Christendom that welcome the intrusion of woke thinking many times because it creates conversations about cultural problems, it is utterly incompatible with the kingdom of heaven. A strict and continuous focus on justice ultimately leaves no room for anything else especially mercy. If only addressing grievances matters, then our culture is actually turning into a prison. A culture like this composed of justice-seeking is what exists in China, Cuba, and even California. I know this is heavy, serious. But as our culture drinks more deeply of this justice emphasis and emblazons it everywhere, it trains us to think that what really matters in this life is justice, that the highest good 
is grievance alleviation. But that's wrong. What did the Apostle James write? For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is at the heart of the kingdom of heaven because God is a God of mercy. This, this is how God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. Listen, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. In God, there is mercy and justice, each distributed according to his wisdom and his love. The people of God have learned to appeal to God's mercy, asking to be spared from his justice. This is typical from the psalm, Psalm 130, verse 3. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The God of mercy is the Lord of the kingdom. Mercy, not justice. Mercy is the character of the kingdom. Beloved, as we'll see from our text in a moment, we who live in the kingdom of heaven must be people of mercy. Now, we don't turn a blind eye to injustice, for sure, but Jesus makes a very strong statement of the priority of mercy in his kingdom. Our text is Matthew 18, verses 23 to 35. The English Standard Version titles it, The Unforgiving Servant. We could rightly retitle it as the justice-seeking servant. Why, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, must we practice mercy? That's the question of our text. Why, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, must we practice mercy? We see we have three reasons here. Number one, it was mercy that brought us into the kingdom. Number two, it is mercy that we're supposed to display to the world. And thirdly, If we are merciless, we will be disciplined. Why? As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, must we practice mercy? It was mercy that brought us into the kingdom. It is mercy that we're supposed to display to the world. And if we are merciless, we will be disciplined. Let's read Matthew chapter 18. We'll begin in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, that's the Lord, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So that the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. And I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. 
When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his mercy delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, clearly, mercy constitutes the kingdom of heaven. And opposed to our culture, steeped in a pursuit of justice, you have given us mercy. Oh Lord, please do it again this morning, even as we read your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Why, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, must we practice mercy? Our first point is this. We do it because it was mercy that brought us into the kingdom. We need to consider first the context or the conditions of this conversation that Jesus had with Peter and this parable that he told. Foremost, Jesus is talking to the disciples about life in the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins, verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus is addressing life in the kingdom of heaven. Now, while the broader context of the parable is a continuation of Matthew 18, 15 to 20, we know that text. It is a direct answer to Peter's question in verse 21. Look at it again. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. You might notice that Peter is asking about what is a just number of times to forgive. Surely there's a limit, right? That's what he's asking. But Jesus' answer was very surprising. I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Peter thought he was being gracious in his willingness to forgive seven times, but he wasn't seeing the fuller picture. Seven times 10 plus seven, 77. These numbers individually stand for completion, perfection, or fullness. Jesus combines them all to make a point. He wasn't giving a limit to the number of times brothers and sisters must forgive. That's not the point of his answer. He introduced the idea of an innumerable number of times. An idea we see captured in the 10,000 talents that the servant owed the king. He answers Peter's question about what is just with a mercy answer. Look at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him, a debtor of 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, the king commanded him to be sold and the wife and children, and all that he has in payment be made. Therefore, Jesus connects this conversation he's having with Peter to this parable. He's explaining what it means to forgive 77 times. The servant was a great debtor to the king. This amount, 10,000 talents, would amount to millions or even billions of dollars today. I mean, no king, much less a servant, had such resources at the time. That fantastic amount represents in physical weight our spiritual debt to God. Our sins incur a debt that we must repay. Justice demands it. Sins against the eternal majesty create infinite debt that will be ultimately paid in eternal punishment. That's, that's what Jesus is talking about. 
Before the king, himself a picture of the father, as you saw from verse 35, before the king stands a sinner, a debtor, who is justly being asked to repay what he owes. And given the size of the debt, it is no promise that he cannot pay. It's not unjust for the king to call to pay those who owe him. And if they cannot pay, he is just to take steps at least to retrieve some of what's been lost and to punish the servant. What the king demands to be sold is simply every single thing that belongs to the servant, his person, his family, his things. His debt will cause him to lose all of it. Verse 26, falling down, therefore, the servant implored him, saying, you must be patient with me and I will pay you everything. The scene is comical. The man owes the king more than he could ever repay in a hundred lifetimes. And yet he still thinks he can repay it. But it's also tragic because he owes the king and he will pay the king what he owes in his person, his family, his things, everything. He pleads for patience or long-suffering so that he might work to repay. Verse 27, out of compassion, the master of that servant released him and forgave his debt. The word compassion comes first in the original language. Jesus stressed the master's response was was deep. That word constitutes, he, he felt it like in his gut. He was out of compassion. He was moved. Genuinely moved. Affected. We could say his heart went out to the servant, but not in a, a, a trivial kind of way, truly. The plea of the servant moved the master. In the end, the master knew, he knew the servant could not repay. And though justice was the order of the day, the master chose mercy instead. The master knew what the servant asked was impossible and it was foolish. No amount of time exists for that man to pay, repay what he owes. The master didn't even try to kind of reiterate just how crazy the request was for more time. He was moved with pity. So he acted in mercy. He released him. He took the shackles of debt off of him, and he forgave his debt. He canceled his debt. It was mercy. Mercy that brought us into the kingdom, so it's mercy that we must practice. Now, I'll use mercy and forgiveness interchangeably here. Let's talk about two applications. First, the king settled his accounts. Now, that's instructive, isn't it? In other words, the debt of sin we owe will be collected. Jesus tells two parables about this. This one here and one in Matthew 25 about the talents the talents the master gave to the servants to invest. At some point, debts will be called. The father will expect his justice to be satisfied. Judgment day is justice day. It's the day when we must pay the father for the penalty of our sins. Beloved, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you belong to God as a son or a daughter, then judgment day for us will be rewards day. Not Justice Day. Can the Presbyterian say amen? amen? I don't mind that at all, by the way. Why will it be Rewards Day and not Justice Day for us? On the cross, the Father vented His just and full wrath upon His Son. For every sin done that has been done or will be done by the elect of God, the Father flashed out in just judgment at His Son. This is what the creed calls, he descended into hell. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Now for the believers, we don't fear his return, but we pray more earnestly, come Lord Jesus. If you trust in Christ, your account has been settled and all that remains is your inheritance in heaven. What do you say to that church? Hallelujah. (laughs) For those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus, who have not put your faith in his saving work, who might even claim not to need a savior, you're like the servant whose debt to the master exceeds the heights of the sky. Hebrews, it reads this, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen, justice is coming. And just as the servant had all that he belonged to him taken and the debt still unpaid, no one who denies Jesus Christ in this life will be able to stand victorious at the judgment. Why would you wait to put your faith in Christ? Why would you wait to believe in him? Why would you risk standing before the judge of the universe with no payment and no advocate? Dare you risk the unexpected coming of the king to call in the debt that you owe to him? Why not rather admit your sins? Grieve over how you've squandered what the Lord has given to you. Turn to God and receive the gospel, the saving news of Jesus Christ. If you've not done that, why not now? The master is coming to collect his debt. Let Christ pay it for you. Secondly, this parable is unpacking forgiveness in the church amongst the brethren in the kingdom. Peter knows. Peter, who asked the question, he knows forgiveness is called for, yet he also knows that it will be challenging to forgive someone repeatedly for sins. I mean, it makes logical sense, right, that we limit how many times we forgive something who does the same thing over and over again, right? I mean, at some point, if we forgive again and again and again and again, are we hurting the person? By not allowing them to feel the pain of their mistakes and learn from them. That might be logical, but it is sub-Christian. That viewpoint that we should withhold forgiveness when it is asked for so that the sinner can learn is a justice viewpoint, not a kingdom mercy viewpoint. The Lord answers Peter's justice question with a mercy answer. In order for us to come to terms with how often we have to forgive each other and to actually forgive the the person who sins against you time and time and time again, what does the Lord say? We dwell on the debt we owed to God that he forgave. That's the only way. Forgiveness is too hard. It isn't a matter of, do I have it in me to forgive this person again? It, it should be, of course I forgive you. You've done nothing near as grievous to me as I have done to the Lord, and he forgave me. Paul said it this way in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This debt our sins accumulate before the Lord is incalculable. It isn't 10 or 1,000 or 10 billion. It is innumerable. 
The debt of sin is so great that an eternity in hell will not satisfy it. The debt of sin is so great that God himself in Jesus Christ had to receive the full judgment for it to be paid. Beloved, when we are sinned against, it is hard, sometimes very hard, to forgive or to even be in a forgiving spirit. But mercy, mercy is the kingdom way. And the Lord himself has paved our path with mercy. You and I in Christ have received more mercy and forgiveness than we can possibly understand, certainly than we can be expected to give someone else. Our debt's been paid by Christ so that there is no reason for us to reject or a brother or a sister who comes to us to be forgiven. We got into this thing by mercy. We live in this kingdom by mercy. The second reason that we must practice mercy as citizens of the kingdom is that it is mercy that we are supposed to be displaying to the world. In other words, part of the reason the Lord shows us mercy time and again is to train us to image him in the same way to all who would watch. Verse 28, but that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, He choked him, saying, you must pay what you owe. Okay, well, this is not, it's not a good start, is it? The servant, who had just been forgiven a measure that was incalculable, left his master's presence not with gratitude, but with greed. The verbs here are instructive. He found, seized him, choked him, and then commanded him, pay. The amount of money, 100 denarii, basically three months' wages is immaterial. It's in the comparison that matters. 10,000 talents, 100 denarii. Do you know what percentage of that, you know how that works out? That fellow servant owed the other one one 600,000th of what the servant owed the master. Verse 29, falling down, therefore, his fellow servant urged him, saying, you must be patient with me and I will repay you. Jesus reminds us that this is a conversation between peers. Does the servant's response sound familiar to you? It is almost verbatim what the first servant said to the master. Jesus did this on purpose so that the reader or the hearer would see that this fellow servant is asking the very same thing the first servant asked the master. Mercy. Mercy in the face of justice. Verse 30. Yet he was unwilling... But he went and cast him into prison until he should pay what he owed. It's amazing, isn't it? It's truly amazing. The servant was owed a trifle compared to what he owed the master. But there was not an ounce of mercy to be found in this man. Nothing merciful was happening in the heart of this servant. Only justice. It was just what the servant did to the other. Remember, he was owed money. And so he was just to say pay. But in the kingdom... This isn't the ethic we use with each other. It is, is it wrong to seek to repay what we owe to each other? Well, of course it's not. Is, it's, is the one who's owed unjust to seek repayment? No, no. Yet, beloved, if, if we neglect to rightly dwell on and keep to the top of our minds the, the forgiveness of our own sins because of Christ, if we neglect this, then justice will be the way we treat each other, not mercy. The moment the servant left the master's chamber, he went looking for a servant who owed him money. Isn't that interesting? 
The text says this, that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants. They didn't just like bump into each other on the way and, hey, man, what are you doing? Oh, I don't know, what are you doing? Hey, you owe me money. It wasn't like that at all. The dude just had his life restored, his wife not taken, his children not taken, his stuff not taken, and instead of running down the, running down the streets, you know, yelling the mercies of the master, he found some dude, grabbed him by the neck, and choked him. What the master did ultimately meant nothing to the sermon. Can you imagine that? Having a debt called that would take 200,000 years to pay back. Seriously, 60 million days wages. That forgiveness made no mark on that guy's soul. It didn't motivate him in the least to be merciful, to be thankful, to, to treat a fellow servant with the same kind of treatment he received from the master. Not a single thing, none of that came to his mind. The obvious question for us is, do we minimize the mercy of God that we have received? Do we minimize that? And, and, and in minimizing that, are we judgmental? Are we oppositional? Are we arrogant with each other? This is a real danger to all who follow Christ because the inclination of our souls is to forget not to remember. As impossible as it is to believe that we'd forget what we've been given by God, it probably only takes us a moment to recognize how we could easily act as if God had done nothing for us. Do you find that inclination in your soul? And if we live like that, if we, if we forget what the Lord has done to us, if we minimize what the Lord has done for us, then we will create a culture, an environment, a community where grievances, not mercy, are the top of our mind. And so things like reparations and payback and animosity will thrive. We won't be a place where the mercy of God is celebrated and then displayed. Rather, we'll be a place where a legalistic commitment to dealing with inequities is our goal. Does that sound familiar? We will turn into another mainline denominational church that lost its focus on preaching and sharing the saving and sanctifying work of Jesus Christ who fits us to do works of thanksgiving and worship and gives us the hope of eternal life. All of that will be gone. We will be a place where the aggrieved parties are seeking payback, black and white, male and female, rich and poor. Think of what our church culture would be like if each of us didn't dwell on the magnitude of how we've been forgiven in Christ. In other words, we'll stop being a Christ-exalting, grace-displaying body and we'll just be another entity committed to earthly things like justice. No. No. The church is the only sanctuary in the world. It isn't a perfect place because it's made up of sinners. But, as I've said, it is the least imperfect place in the universe. Why? Mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is accepting the burden of being wronged without expecting justice. It's paying the cost ourselves for another's sin against us without asking them to pay for it. It's what the Apostle Peter said, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Love and mercy, synonyms there. If someone sins against us, shouldn't 
we justly demand that they act? Well, Jesus does instruct us in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 to address sins in the church. We don't turn a blind eye to sins, but we don't pursue those things out of a sense of justice, but out of unity, love, and worship. The justice of sins we commit and those commit us against us has already happened when the Lord Jesus Christ was killed. You understand that? You understand that, church? Justice for our sins and for those who sin against us has been paid by the Lord Jesus. That's how we can display mercy when we would be right in demanding justice. Now, when we are sinned against, we must be prepared and looking for ways to show mercy. If we regularly show mercy, then our church culture will be safe and resilient Hopeful, charitable, missional, all the things the world is not, all the things the world desperately needs. Beloved, mercy in here leads to successful mission out there. It is for this reason the Apostle Paul puts the warnings in the liturgy of the Lord's Supper. Isn't it interesting that the Apostle tells us we need to discern the body Yet he doesn't exactly lay out what that means. He makes us contemplate, what does it mean to discern the body? Well, he connects the body and blood of Christ with what? I say it every week. The body of Christ, the people of God, the church. We must be considering both. When he calls for us to examine ourselves, it isn't personal sins committed against the Lord. It's about how have we been conducting ourselves with the brothers and sisters in here. Is it with mercy? Or with justice, are you ready to forgive sins? Or are you ready to hold on to a grudge? Are we pursuing community or are we showing partiality? The display of mercy in today's culture may be the most pronounced and confusing thing they've ever seen. Right? Our culture is in a justice moment. Perhaps one that has not been seen for decades. In our culture, nothing less than the rolling of heads will do. But that is not the kingdom. Our God will make things right in time. The day of judgment will bring justice. But in the meantime, we have the opportunity, the obligation to witness mercy instead. What could be the most profound expression of evangelism besides mercy? They don't understand the words anymore, right? The church, the culture is by and large losing its understanding of of religion, of Christianity. And so what they won't lose an understanding of is being treated with mercy instead of judgment. If you and I in the church would treat each other with mercy instead of justice, wouldn't that be the most amazing statement to the world? We don't need justice, beloved. God will take care of that. What we need and what those around us need is mercy. A real treatment bearing the sins of others so they can see what it looks like to be free, cared for, loved. Are you giving mercy to those around you? In the last part of the parable, the Lord gives us a very solemn warning to those of us in the church who consistently refuse to be merciful. Look at verse 31. His fellow servants 
seeing all that happened, were distressed greatly, and they went to their master and told in detail all that had happened. Perhaps they thought they would be the next victim of this guy, this justice-seeking, ungrateful servant. That guy had the authority to throw them into the debtor's prison. He couldn't sell them into slavery like the master, but he had authority to send them into prison. What happened in secret didn't stay secret, did it? Look at verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, Evil servant, at all that debt I forgave you because you pleaded with me. Should you not have shown mercy to your fellow servant as I was merciful to you? Evil servant. To perceive mercy and then to give none is evil and wicked. The master called out the servant's actions in that statement. The master's intent was for the servant to act just as he had acted with him, right? The master found out and made a point of connecting his actions with the servant, with how the servant should have handled his fellow servant. Mercy should beget mercy. It didn't occur or it didn't matter to the servant the magnitude of what the master had done. Millions or billions forgiven and he can't forgive others? Verse 34, and in anger, his master handed him over to the oppressive jailer. The ESV uses the word torturer. Handed him over to the oppressive jailer until he should pay all that he owed. The master's just anger motivated this severe sentence. The servant earned it. The master wasn't being capricious. Not debtor's prison this time, but a torturous one. He would be there until he repaid everything, which was impossible. That repayment, we already know, would never happen. He would be jailed until the end of his life. He would die in prison. Interestingly, he wasn't jailed because he owed. Remember, the servant had already been forgiven his debt. He was jailed because he was merciless. And such a servant was not fit to be in the house of the master who is merciful. You following that? Jesus, Jesus concludes this parable with the truth in verse 35. Look at it. Thus also my heavenly father will do to you if you do not forgive every brother from your heart. Beloved, if that doesn't smack you, it should. That's a very significant and serious statement. The master in the parable was the father in heaven. The servants are those who claim to follow Jesus Christ. The nature of the master and of his house was mercy, so the servants were expected to treat each other that way. Mercy, we find out, is analogous to forgiveness. In this verse, Jesus doesn't give us any room to choose upon whom we should have mercy. The English Standard Version isn't terribly clear, but it is in Greek. Every brother from your heart. We don't get to pick and choose who we forgive in the church. No brother or sister who sins against us and comes to us in repentance should walk away without having been forgiven. In fact, this is how Jesus ended his teaching on prayer in Matthew chapter 5. For if you, do, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If we exercise mercy on each other, then the Lord will respond to us with mercy. If we choose justice instead, then we can expect the Lord to use that same standard with us. Not to cast us out of the kingdom of heaven, beloved. We know that's not true and that's not possible. But do you want to reap what you sow in the flesh? Do you want the Lord to put down mercy and give you what your sins deserve? Is there a hearty no out there? 
Are you kidding me? I don't want what I deserve. Who on earth would? How is this avoided then? How do we avoid the discipline of the Lord? It's very simple, beloved. We show mercy to each other. We forgive the sins that we perpetrate against each other. Though the Bible, the Bible is clear that though we've been saved and forgiven by grace, the expectation of the Lord is that we will treat each other with grace and with mercy. And if we failed to do so, then the Lord has discipline in store for us. Or by being merciless with others, we will prove that we never belong to the Lord in the first place. It's not easy to be merciful to a brother or sister who sins against us, is it? Sometimes that sin is terrible and almost impossible to forgive. We do too often think we are just in withholding mercy and forgiveness. But beloved, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we are never just in withholding mercy from one who seeks it from us. Truly, in that moment, when someone who has sinned against you asks for mercy and forgiveness from you or from me, we dwell on the debt the Father has forgiven us. And then the next words out of our mouths will be, of course, I forgive you. But as the Lord said, if we would hold mercy and forgiveness from the one who seeks it, then we sin against the Lord and we should expect his discipline. When we forgive and act with mercy, we don't absolve the sinner, his sin. The Lord will call that person to account for what he has done. But that's the Lord's responsibility, not ours. Ours is to show a sinner the same kind of mercy that we have received from the Father. Boundless, innumerable, bottomless mercy. In showing mercy, we are calling the sinner to see again the goodness of God, the loving kindness of God, the depths of his forbearance and his patience and his love. It's precisely what is set before us on that table, isn't it? Proof of the boundless mercy of God, that he would send his only son who would obey the law on our behalf and still receive what justly should rest upon us, casting us into an eternity without him. All of that received in the body and blood of Jesus Christ, who then gives to us the opportunity to fellowship with him by eating and drinking, where he spiritually comes to renew what these things signify, what they mean. What they mean is mercy. So let's eat. Brothers, if you're going to serve this morning, please come up and join me up here.